Hey everyone, this is Caleb. I'm so excited that you've decided to spend a few minutes today here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. And today I am so excited to be joined by Erwin McManus. Erwin is somebody that I've been learning from for, man, probably close to 10 years or so from his various books, from his podcast, the the Battle Ready podcast, to uh, The Last Arrow, to uh, to The Artist and Soul is... Uh, it's if it's not my favorite book that he's written, it is definitely up there. Uh, but today I am talking with him about another great book of his called "The Genius of Jesus," and so excited uh, to dive into that conversation. If this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner, what we want to do here is create a safe place to have difficult conversations, and we talk about this a little bit in uh, in my conversation with Irwin. But there's just uh, this mentality, especially whenever it comes to, uh, especially whenever it comes to in the church and of the Christian faith, which is, which just breaks my heart of just the idea of asking questions is kind of against the rules in that, and that it's not strongly encouraged. And this is really what we want to do here on the Learner's Corner is to create that learning mindset, that that curious mindset, because God is so much bigger than what we can understand and even what we can comprehend. And I think there's a big world out there and there's so many different people and we're all so different that there's a lot for us to learn from. And so, so excited for that and to kind of jump into this conversation here and just a little bit. If you're not familiar with Irwin, Irwin has committed his life to the study of genius and the pursuit of God, never knowing that the two worlds would one day collide. He is an iconoclast, entrepreneur, storyteller, fashion designer, filmmaker, and cultural thought leader whose singular intention is to violate our view of reality. Oh man, I love that so much. He is the founder of Mosaic, a church movement based in the heart of Hollywood with a community that spans the globe and is the acclaimed author of The Way of the Warrior, the La- which we talked with him a little bit about that. We had a, a short conversation a few years ago about that and I'll uh, link to the episode with that. We also, and he's also authored The Last Arrow and other leading books on spirituality and creativity. Irwin has also studied philosophy at Elon University has a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, a Master of Divinity from Southwestern Theological Seminary, and a Doctorate of Humane Letters from Southeastern University. He lives in Los Angeles, California with his wife, Kim McManus. I was so excited to bring this conversation to you, uh, which we're going to jump into here in just a little bit, because Irwin embodies so many uh, characteristics and qualities that that I try to emulate as well in that of humility and curiosity and being willing to to push towards the frontier and just this idea of of constantly learning and opening yourself up to the growth of possibility. And so we're going to dive in here and talk with him uh, about a lot, but particularly uh his book, The Genius of Jesus. Oh, also, I almost forgot to mention, he's got a brand new podcast out called The Genius Of, which is an incredible idea. I've listened to an episode so far, and 
it was really good in that. But one of the things that he does is he looks at the origin stories of many geniuses that he's been in contact with over the years and gets them to to dive into that and kind of unpack their stories and what has has made them them and what has with what has unlocked the genius with them as well. So, without any further wait, here is my conversation with Erwin McManus. Well, Erwin, so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Oh, it's good to be here with you. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, anytime that someone, you know, releases a book or uh, a work of art or anything, like just puts anything like that into the world, I love hearing the story behind it or the series of events that led someone to go, hey, I I need to put this out into the world. And so for you, with uh, the genius of Jesus, I would just love to hear what what was that for you? Uh, well, it's really the convergence of two um, different themes that have been a part of my life. I've been studying human genius pretty much all of my adult life. And uh, I've always been fascinated with uh, the phenomenon of genius, of creativity, of imagination, invention, innovation. And and so I knew one day I was going to write a book on genius. And And then as I spent years and years studying genius, I was always struck how Jesus was never on a singular list of geniuses that I've ever found. And, you know, there's always certain people like Picasso and uh, Mozart and uh, Einstein that would make it on the list. Da Vinci was probably, is probably, I think, the, the singular genius that's always highlighted. And But Jesus never made a list. I found lists that had Gandhi on it and um, Mandela, even Muhammad, but not Jesus. So I began to ask just a, uh, really more like an anthropological question. Yeah. You know, who I believe in Jesus in terms of his divinity is one thing, but just asking the question, does Jesus qualify as a genius? Does, does he show the attributes of genius? And, and if he does, what exactly would be his singular genius? And, and, and that's what really drove me to write this book was, was asking those two basic questions. What is genius? Uh, why is it such an anomaly? Why do only 2% of the population ever seem to exhibit any degree of genius? Uh, And then does the genius of Jesus have any direct impact on who we are as people? Because if Jesus does demonstrate a unique genius, is that genius transferable? And that is what drove this book. Yeah. Can you talk me through like the your process of going like, okay, I want to see if the criteria for genius applies to Jesus. What did that look like for you? Well, that's what chapter one is. Chapter one is really just a chapter on the concept of genius. And uh, the first thing I really wanted to do is just break down the concept, a little bit of the history of it, uh, where the idea of genius uh, came from, really from the ancient Greeks. And uh, and. And what were the repetitive markers of genius, whether it was in the world of, of art or, or film or music or science or mathematics or physics? Were there some commonalities in those expressions of Jesus, of genius? And then does Jesus actually meet that criteria? And so that was a, a, a really the introductory process for me and, uh, and digging into the question of, all right, when, when you 
extract the divinity of Jesus, if you can eliminate everything that can be explained by him being God and just trying to look at him from the human side, um, does he still have attributes of genius? Or if you remove, in a sense, the divinity of Jesus, do you just sort of have an average guy who is really nice? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, that's that's one of the big statements that you say in there is that Jesus expressed his genius in being human. Can you tease that out a little bit? Um, yeah, I think that's that's where um, the book really moves toward in that every genius has a domain. And, you know, and so if you're Mozart, composition, music is your domain. If you're Picasso, then the canvas art is your domain. If you're uh, Bobby Fischer, the chessboard is your domain. And so there's always a domain in which you can actually see that genius actualized. And that's why I think Jesus's genius has been overlooked. You need to realize that 2,000 years later, no one has ever talked about Jesus as a genius. This is a this this is singularly really the first time that that Jesus has been looked at from a from a sociological or anthropological level um, from the filter of genius. And and usually when we think of the genius of Jesus, it's really the, the divinity of Jesus. We're not really looking at his humanity. And I, I kept wondering, well, why is it that his genius is so hard to identify or to quantify? And it's because the canvas in which Jesus expresses genius is actually in, in humanity. And that his genius was actually in the ability to transform humans into um, a lesser expression of being human, to a, a journey toward becoming fully human. And, and that, to me, is like an incredible work of genius to help us reclaim our humanity. Yeah. I was going to say, in a little bit, I do want to ask you about some of those things that we can learn from Jesus to help us reclaim that humanity. But I, I want to stick on uh, the human geniuses, because I know that you said that this has been something that you've you know, been researching for years and years. Who are some of the, the human geniuses that stand out to you or have just continued to come to mind or the ones that, uh, that you've really continued to dive into and learn about? Well, for me, my... my um my iconic figure throughout life outside of Jesus was Leonardo da Vinci. And even when I started Mosaic, a lot of his art and uh, aesthetic informed the way I designed things and created things here. And one of the things that to me is amazing about da Vinci is that he imagined things that the, the technology to achieve them did not exist. And, and so you're talking about a person who designed a submarine before there was any technology that could ever create a submarine or designed a helicopter before that could ever be uh, actualized. And, and and in some ways I felt what a tragedy that da Vinci lived so early on that his ideas only seemed like mythology or fantasy. And if he had, if he had just been born a little bit later, he still would have been too early. And that's the crazy thing about da Vinci is that he had been born hundreds of years later. He would have been too early for his ideas to um, come to fruition. And, and so I've always struck by him because um, he, Da Vinci, even though most artists actually are very past-oriented or very present-oriented, they paint what was or what is. Uh, da Vinci was an artist who was future-oriented and he imagined what had never existed. And that for me was a, a, a significant deviation from other creatives. And, it's the same with Picasso. One of the things that astonishes me about Picasso is that uh, Picasso 
was um, was an artist who was a pioneer. If you have ten thousand painters, most of them are going to paint what they see, and uh, and and when you look at the canvas, you see what they see. You may not be able to paint that, but you can actually go, oh, it's a tree. It's a tree. Oh, that's the um, you know the Eiffel Tower. Oh, that's my mother. And and the painting reflects not just what the artist sees, but what you see. Picasso was a futurist who saw what no one could see. And he saw in a way that no one had ever seen. And, and I'm always intrigued by, by uh, the genius that actually shifts us from a, a present understanding of possibility into uh, a world of impossibility where new possibilities emerge. And that I've always been incredibly drawn to that. Yeah. Talk to me about what you've learned from uh, Da Vinci or Picasso, or even just, you know, through your own experiences that has allowed you to make that shift from thinking in only terms of the the possible to, to looking to the impossible into the future, even if it might be, you know, decades or hundreds of years into the future. I think one of the challenges when it comes to um, our, our particular faith is that a lot of our faith is rooted in looking backwards. And because, uh, you know, Jesus died 2,000 years ago and our life centers around the sacrifice of Jesus and he rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. So we we tend to think that our faith is supposed to always point backwards. And one of the difficult things for me when I became a person of faith was that Christianity felt like it was a a a, um, a culture that's postured backwards. And so we're walking into the future looking backwards. And, and, and so it's a very difficult space to actually be a futurist in, to actually be a person who turns toward the future and sees things in a new way. And, and I just had to accept the fact that a part of my like role in life was to paint canvases of what isn't seen so that people might be able to see things a new way for the first time. Uh, and, and, and I think this is one of the reasons for me, the, the whole study of, um, of genius was really significant because geniuses were always seen as heretical. They're all seen as unorthodox. They're always, uh, they're always challenging the status quo. They were always redefining impossibility. And, and those characteristics were characteristics that I had a particularly high value for. And that felt more natural uh, to me. And, uh, and, and so when I would study people like Da Vinci or, or uh, Mozart or, uh, or Picasso or Hawkins or, uh, Einstein or whoever that it may have been. And I didn't really study what they learned. I studied how they learned. I studied not what they produced, but what process they uh, they made a part of their life, what allowed them to keep their imagination open, what allowed them to see uh, unlimited possibilities, what allowed them to see the world in a new way. And, and that's something that I've always really valued. And so I, I turned 63 this week, um, but I, I've never seen the world through old eyes. And I feel like I still have the eyes of a five-year-old. I still see the the world with childlike wonder. And I still have expectation of the unknown and the uncertain and the unexpected. What's helped you maintain that or keep that like that, those, those five-year-old eyes that you were talking about? Well, I think it's a combination of wonder. I just, I'm endlessly curious. And I'm constantly awakened by the wonder of life, the beauty of life, the astonishing nature of everything. And so I, I live my life ready to be surprised. And, uh, and, and a part of that is um, what I would call practical humility. 
you know, because the moment you talk about humility, you're not humble. So I talk about really for me, it's like practical humility. I don't know if you're humble or not, but I don't, but I can know if you practice the, uh, in a sense, the art of humility and a part of the art of humility, the practice of humility is to know you don't know, to uh, know that there's still something yet to be learned, to know that you can be wrong, to know that um, even when you're wrong, you think you're right, <laughs> you know, and uh, to keep your heart postured uh, toward truth and to keep your mind pliable toward uh, new learning. And so I've always just kept this posture that um, I'm probably wrong about a lot of things that I think I'm right about and that I need to keep learning and growing and developing as a human being. I, and I also live with wonder where I, I just, I want to keep imagining things I could never imagine and keep creating things I didn't know I was capable of creating and keep trying to see things from new perspectives and new vantage points. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to something that you said um, about uh, Da Vinci and Picasso and some of the other geniuses. You said that you don't pay attention to what the things they were learning, but how they learned and not necessarily what they produced, but the process. Can you talk about that? And like some of the, like some of the the skills that they developed that maybe you took from them that helps with, um, with how you go about learning things or how, what their process was for things? Yeah, I think this is um, accurate. I think it was Monet when he was uh, a student uh, learning um, comp- uh, composition and art that they would go into the Louvre or into museums. Um, so, and, and in the museums, they were supposed to re- replicate the paintings on the walls, but Monet would turn his chair in the opposite direction, look out the window and paint what he saw outside. And, and I think one of the processes that you use to, in a sense, awaken your own genius is to not look what, not, not to look at what everyone else is looking at, but to make sure you're looking at what everyone else is overlooking. Hmm. And, and so I've just spent my life always looking at things that people overlook and, and discovering wonderful things. This, this may be too simple, but how do you, too simple of a question, but how do you do that? Because like you said, everybody else is overlooking. And so how do you notice the things that get overlooked? Yeah, I think some of it is just to have childlike curiosity because it seems like children always go to the wrong thing, right? <laughs> and they're always putting the wrong thing in their mouth. They're not eating the food. They're, you know, they're eating the rocks. And, and so I, I, I think that when, you know, when you're a child, you're not breaking the rules. You don't even understand the rules. You're just, you're just exploring and you're infinitely curious and, you know, uh, an infant's discovering their hands for the first time, discovering their feet for the first time. And, you know, the things that are mundane to us are, uh, are fascinating to, through the eyes of a child. And, and I think that some of it is just to, um, to not let things become mundane or normal or, or expected, but to always be looking at things in fresh and new ways. And I think it's a practice. It's a discipline. I mean, I, I just work really, really hard to try to see beautiful things every day, to try to see extraordinary things every day, to try to see something that uh, I lock away in my memory and my mind and go, wow, that, that, that's worth noting about, um, about life. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of childhood, you know, you referenced this study from George Land, uh, mm-hmm. which talks about ch- uh, children and geniuses. Would you mind unpacking that study some? Yeah, I mean, I, I was really interested. I had seen some other studies first, but then George Land really is sort of a, a footnote in in the exploration of human genius and creativity in that he worked for NASA and they had hired him to identify geniuses that they could hire and so he created this 
genius assessment, the genius test. And when they gave it to five-year-olds, about 98% of them actually came at genius level. And they did a longitudinal study and followed those kids through for the next 10 years. Five years later, that group of 98% geniuses was only 30% geniuses. And, and then five years after that, when they're uh, 15 years old, only 12% of them graphed out as geniuses. And in a further study of 280,000 adults, average age 31, only uh, 2% of them actually um, tested out as geniuses. And it just seemed that that genius was something that inherently exists in us and is lost over time, that, that creativity is um, not a learned behavior. It's a natural human attribute that, that non-creativity, as John would say, is a, uh, as a land would say, is a, uh, is a learned behavior. Hmm. What do you see or what have you seen or experienced that erodes that creativity in us as we get older? I think so many things, practical things, like you have to get a job, you know, practical things like you're in the educational system and you have to sit in a chair and study the classes they tell you to study and uh, learn the same material as everyone else. And um, our educational system is, is uh, set up to believe to um, with the conviction that every child is the same. And, uh, and so you, you have to be good at conforming. You have to be good at standardization. You have to be good at compliance. You have to be good at uh, the mundane to excel in school. So, you know, if you make straight A's first to 12th grade, I actually, I think it's less likely that you will express a dramatic genius if you achieve extremely well throughout school all your life. And it's more likely if you, uh, that you will find an, a unique or express a unique or inherent genius if you, have a, if you refuse to conform to um, the standards and expectations of the structures that are around you. And that's why sometimes creative people are seen as rebellious or obstinate or unteachable or, or non-cooperative or maybe even arrogant because they don't play by the same rules. Yeah. Would you mind just talk like just I'm um, like I'm just very fascinated by the idea. Would you mind just expounding on that a little bit more? On which part? On the non on the nonconformity piece of it and learning to be yeah just on that piece of it. Yeah, I think there's different kinds of nonconformity. Some people are nonconformists in that they're just rebellious. They just um, they haven't learned the discipline of of actualizing their best self, and that's one kind of nonconformity that doesn't actually produce a better version of you. And, but there's another aspect of nonconformity where uh, you just refuse to see the world the way everyone else sees it or just, or to do life the same way everyone else does life. And so, you know, when, when you have like those anomalies, whether you have a, a, a Serena or, or a Venus Williams, um, tennis becomes the singular focus of their life as, as young girls. And, you know, for Bobby Fischer, chess became the singular focus of his life when he was a boy. And, and I think that's the difference is that I would say nonconformists live skewed lives. Conformists live very well-rounded lives. And, um, and so when people would always talk to me about balance for over the last, oh my gosh, 40 years, people say, Erwin, how do you live a balanced life? And I would tell them, you're asking the wrong person. I, I don't live a balanced life. I, I live a skewed life. My life is completely out of balance. I live my life overwhelmingly in the direction of the things that I'm passionate about and that I love and that I feel I must do in life. And, um, and, and I, I think a lot of times, um, healthy people don't understand that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, 
I remember years and years ago, I called my brother and said, I got a staff member and I just cannot get him to achieve at a high level. And, you know, he wants to show up at work at nine, go home at five, work Monday through Friday, show up at church with his family. And he just doesn't really have a lot of drive or ambition. And my brother said, oh, you, you hired someone who's healthy. And uh, he just wants to live a healthy, normal, whole life. Erwin, why would you ever do that? You, you, that's not the world that you create. You create a world where people have profound ambition and drive and passion and, and uh, are willing to like, you know, uh, sweat and, and weep and bleed for things that matter deeply. And yeah, I'm not the right person if you want like a balanced person. You know, I, and I don't, I don't think that you ever find your genius by being balanced. I think you find your genius by being skewed. Yeah. Uh, talk about how like the, at least for me, I would see balance and healthy. They're probably two different things. Uh, <laughs> and that, and so can you just talk about that more and how, how do you live a, a sustainable or a healthy lifestyle while also ma- pursuing your genius in that? Yeah, I think being healthy is more about being congruent, about um, making sure that your inner world matches your outer world, that your outer world matches your inner world. And that um, when when you live a life that's congruent, when that's integral, um, you actually become a healthy human being. And that's why a lot of people live very normal, very, very predictable lives, but they're still terribly unhealthy. And it's because they're not congruent. Their, um, their life isn't really being informed by their soul. And, and I, and so I, I think that health, we try to sometimes make health so complicated. I actually think health is really deeply rooted in emotional and relational health. That if you have uh, healthy relationships, you're going to be doing great. And if you have unhealthy relationships, you're going to be doing terrible. I mean, it's just not that complicated. And uh, emotional health has so much more to do with um, focusing on the good that you do for others than it is on the good others do for you. And if you're like, if you're, if your flow is, um, why aren't people doing more for me? You're always going to feel in a deficit. And if your flow is how much good can I do for others? You're always going to have an abundance in your life because you can always do more. And, and, you know, and so I, I found for me, uh, um, a wonderful sense of wholeness and health, um, when I'm not trying to live my life to please other people, we're not trying to live my life for the, ex- the expectations of others. And, and I think uh, one of the keys is to stop living a life of obligation, but to live a life of intention. And when you, the further you can move from living a life of obligation, the healthier you're going to be as a human being. The more you can live a life of intention, living out the mission, the calling um, that you, you're created to, to live out, the healthier you're going to be. And then it balances as a different thing, right? You know, and because you just, as a parent, you can't be balanced. You don't, you don't give all your children the same amount of time. It's not about giving, you know, if you have 10 kids, you don't break it down, you know, 30 minutes a kid, or, you know, you know, if you have two kids, you don't break it down, you get half and half. Um, you, you, you know, that's, that's an unrealistic view of balance, you know? And so when I would travel, I would sometimes come home with a gift for Mariah or sometimes come home with a gift for Aaron. And sometimes I come home with a gift for both of them. But, um, but I remember they say, well, wait a minute, where's my gift? And I'd say, hey, I buy you a gift when I see something that I know belongs to you. Like, I don't just buy you a gift so that both of you have a gift. Like when I see something and I go, oh, Mariah, this is just perfect, Mariah, I'll buy it. If I don't see the one for Aaron, then I don't buy it. And so I never really tried to be equal or balanced. I just tried to be truthful and go, 
um, I found something, this it really expresses how I feel about you or expresses something I know that will bring you joy or meaning. And, and it's the same way, like in, in my marriage, you know, and um, like Kim is, is different to other people, you know, and I could buy her flowers forever and it would be meaningless to her, you know, and, and I could buy her a lot of gifts and she just would probably return them or never use them. And for her, it's just really like, you know, if I take out the garbage or if I help her clean up the house or if I show up at one of her events and, and I'm, I'm part of the breakdown crew, you know, that for her is flowers that for her, you know, is the, the, the gift that just keeps on giving. And, and you have to realize it because people are not the same. It's not about equal. It's not about the same. It's not about balance. It really is about the uniqueness of every relationship. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to something that you said earlier, you know, you had mentioned, and you talk about this in the book too, um, how whenever you're a genius, especially on the futurist side of things, sometimes you could be seen as a heretic or you could be seen as, oh, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, and you just get a lot of criticism because of that. How have you learned to handle that? Because especially like in, in the faith world, especially in the Christian world, like you said, we're not a future thinking, uh, Culture, we're not yeah. natural. Yeah, we're not a natural uh, future thinking movement. And so uh, how have you learned to deal with that criticism uh, and being misunderstood? Yeah, it's never been easy. And uh, it was harder for me, I think, when I was younger than it is now. And because a lot of the people who are critics when I was in my 20s or 30s or 40s or even 50s, they're, they don't even have a voice anymore. So you have to realize that like, a lot of the people who are so loud, um, if all they have is criticism, their voice is very short-lived. And if, if all you're known for is what you're against, you won't be known for anything very long. And, and so I think you have to just sort of like ride it out and go, am I doing the right thing? You know, and am I living my life so that people will like me or accept me? Or am I living my life so that I can do the most good in the world? Uh, and, and frankly, I wouldn't have written a lot of my books if I was building it on how do I sell? How many books can I sell? Or can I be loved by, you know, people of faith? And I sort of accepted for years, my books would not be carried in Christian bookstores. And that people would have to go to Borders or Barnes and Nobles or Amazon or wherever, whatever existed at the time and, uh, and buy my books there. My books were just not going to get carried, you know, in, in the Christian bookstores or Lifeway or, you know, and, and I just, I, I decided a long time ago that um, the best way to neutralize your critics is to pay attention enough to learn from their criticism so you can get better. And, but not to let them define your identity so that you don't get worse. Yeah. And I mean, can you imagine if somebody like writes this horrible article about you because they want to destroy you, but there's a seed of truth in it and you take it and you grow and you change. I mean, what, 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 well, I mean, that is like the perfect, like Kung Fu to take what they meant for harm and you actually become a better human being. And, and, and so I've just, I've tried to remind myself, even people who have been horrific uh, in regards to me, I mean, I had death threats. There were people who were going to kill me because they disagreed with my theological positions. It was the most bizarre thing in the world. And I just remind myself that a lot of times people who are driven by fear end up expressing the worst version of themselves and that they may be sincere. Maybe they're just afraid for their kids or whatever. And, um, and so I, I just try as hard as I can to not attribute the worst intention for them. 
and, and just keep doing the good that I think I'm supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, this next question is a little bit of a, I guess it's a two-parter. I want to ask you, in your, in your research on genius, what surprised you the most? And kind of like on the back half of it, of and researching the part about Jesus and his genius, what surprised you the most? Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, I, I was definitely uncomfortable writing about genius. And um, because immediately, like the moment we advertised, like I have a podcast called The Genius Of, and the moment I advertised it, somebody went, you know, a Christian went really crazy going, you see Irma McManus is calling himself a genius. And, I'm, and it didn't even occur to me that that's how that person would read that. And so the moment you talk about something like genius, you're in great danger of, of being criticized and critiqued. And another person sends a comment going, Jesus wasn't a genius, he was God. And I'm going, well, can't he be both? <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, we wouldn't, if I said Jesus was compassionate, we wouldn't go, Jesus wasn't compassionate, he was God. You know, but somehow we put genius in this odd kind of space. And I'm going, yes, you can actually celebrate the genius of Jesus without diminishing the divinity of Jesus. And, mm -hmm. and so one of the things that surprised me the most has been some of the initial pushback or fear of calling Jesus a genius. And, uh, and I'm going, this is like a compliment. <laughs> and, uh, um, and, it, and, it's, and it's profound because it, we've never excavated the genius of Jesus. This is like so fresh and new. And, 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 I, and so I think that for me, one of the things that surprised me about the area of genius is that more human beings have the capacity to live a life of genius than do. And that I'm going to have, there's going to be so much resistance. Even people who are geniuses are resistant to this concept because it makes them less unique if there's genius in everyone. And so it's, it's going to be an interesting challenge there. And because um, the, the facts are against me, by the way. You see, because 98% of people never express any level of genius. So the facts are going against what I'm writing about. And, but the facts are always against the future. The facts are always for the past. And because the facts said we couldn't fly, the facts said that we couldn't build a submarine, the facts said that there would never be wireless telephones. The facts, you know, told us a lot of things. And if we always listened to the facts, we would never create the future. And, uh, but one of the things I think that to me, like, surprised me at the genius of Jesus was how elegant he was. And, uh, in his nuances and expression of genius. One of the things that is interesting about genius is that when a person expresses their genius, they make it look simple. Hmm. And it, it, and you, you, you know, you watch Michael Jordan, you know, and in his films and you go, gosh, he makes it look so easy. And the way Steph Curry hits threes, I love basketball. Like he just makes it look so easy. And when you, when you watch like, the Olympics and you see these world-class gymnasts or world, you know, world, world, world-class swimmers, and they just make it look so easy. And, they, and there's, there's almost a mythology of greatness because once you have a level of genius, they just make it look easy. And Jesus made grace look easy. It just looks so easy to be graceful. And in fact, the whole language of being graceful, like we, you know, we only use the word graceful when we talk about like an athlete or a dancer. And yet Jesus was graceful because 
the way he used grace was so elegant that it looks simple. I mean, how simple it is to say, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. I mean, just one stroke of the brush and Jesus erased all the condemnation in that arena. Just one stroke of the brush and he could look at her and say, so woman who condemns you? I mean, and I, and, and I think that one of the things that was so to me so profound about Jesus is I fell in love with Jesus in a new and overwhelming way. Like I would follow Jesus uh, into the fires of hell and uh, um, based on the way he lived a life of love and the way that he used power and the way he taught us to appreciate beauty and use beauty as the greatest weapon against tragedy. And, and so Jesus to me is just full of surprises and I can't wait for people to read the strokes of the genius of, of Jesus. Yeah. Can you tease out just what you were saying of learning, learning to just fall in love with Jesus in a new way and what you learned um, and how that, how that played out a little bit? Well, I mean, I think that whenever you grow in your admiration for someone or you get to know them better, your, the level of, of affection grows. I mean, you know, I, I have this genuine sense that that people who do not love Jesus simply just don't know him. That um, to know him is to is to be overwhelmed with affection toward him. Like, and so I don't I don't feel like I have to argue people to Jesus. I just I go I just have to find some way for people to see Jesus clearly. Like when, uh, years and years ago, when Mariah she's twenty nine now, but when she was oh I don't know eleven, I took her to Paris. She wanted to see the Mona Lisa. We went to the um, the Louvre and she ran through the Louvre, avoiding everything else, all those other masterpieces and works of art. And so she found the Mona Lisa and there was a, um, there was a rope that kept you from getting it, getting really pretty close to it. And so she was standing, when I found her, I had to chase her down. I found her, she's standing at the back of the rope. She was the only one there and just staring at the Mona Lisa and and she was so young, I thought, well, this is going to last like five seconds, right? She just stood there minute after minute after minute after minute after minute. And I didn't interrupt her for quite a while because I, I felt like I was, in, I was invading a very sacred moment. And after a while, she just finally broke the silence and she said, I could just stare at her all day. Now, what's odd to me was, I don't think Mariah understood the complexity of the art form or, or the genius of Da Vinci's strokes or why the Mona Lisa is iconic or how does this portrait of a woman's face who may be a smiling, maybe not, what makes it timeless? What, what, what makes it a work of art? What makes it a work of genius? I didn't, I, I didn't have to explain that. I couldn't have. She didn't need to understand it. She experienced it. And, and I, I think that, that a part of the challenge is that we've made Jesus so monolithic that he's almost a cartoon character rather than a masterpiece. And, and so, you know, a part of falling in love with Jesus more profoundly was um, grappling with, wow, my life has been completely radicalized in a positive way by someone who lived 2,000 years ago. My life is completely transformed by someone 
that lived 2000 years ago. And, and I can, I can say like, even if, even if I didn't believe Jesus was God, understanding who he was as a man makes me want to be like him. If I could have a singular ambition in my life, I would love to, to live and die. And people say, wow, he was like Jesus. That's good. Um, you had mentioned a couple of minutes ago, <clears throat> you had mentioned a couple of minutes ago um, about the resistance to us labeling Jesus as a genius. Um, what, what do you think is it in us that causes us to resist that idea? Um, I just think that, that most people who revere Jesus are more comfortable with his divinity than his humanity. And, and, and I think that when I say Jesus was a genius, people are going, wait a minute, are you discounting the miracles? Right. You, you know, and I go, no, no, I'm actually discounting the miracles and saying, you don't even need the miracles. <laughs> to see the genius of Jesus. Like that, that's to me is what's so amazing. Get rid of all the miracles and watch how astonishing Jesus is as a historical figure. Man, that's pretty powerful to think about though, yeah. to even think that you can admire Jesus without the miracles. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I don't know if we've taken the time to really look at that. And that for me is worth, uh, it's worth the effort. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, if someone, like, this may be too simple of a question, but if someone is wanting to understand the humanity of Jesus a little bit better, what would you say to them? Well, obviously, I would say you need to read The Genius of Jesus. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's why I wrote this book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. Uh, and I hope that's what you'll tell them, too. <laughs> yeah, yes. Oh, yeah. Nope, I've, I've read the book, and it's it's a great book. Um, I, I don't want to tease all of it because we want them to get the book. What's, what's one thing, and you've mentioned a little bit of it as well. Um, what's an aspect of Jesus's humanity that you've gained a greater appreciation for recently? Well, I think that one of the things that really has always um, confounded me is this whole dynamic of forgiveness. Because I, I I don't know if other species forgive. Like I I don't know if wolves forgive, or I, I don't know if you know polar bears forgive. I don't know if snakes forgive. I uh, it seems to me that it's a uniquely human dynamic, and and so a part of when I was writing this, I the whole profound nature of forgiveness, and uh, and why it's essential to human health was really significant uh, in connection to uh, to grace. Because I, I feel like grace has been a word that we've used so much that it has almost no meaning. And, and what really began to strike me in such a par- profound way was the liberating nature of forgiveness and, and how Jesus elevates our thinking. He doesn't just elevate our emotional health. But people who are unforgiving just can't think as deeply as people who are forgiving. And, and in fact, there's been recent uh, studies, and, I, and let me see if I can pull up the percentages because I, I wasn't really thinking about that, but um, that even like optimistic people show that they have higher levels of intelligence than pessimistic people. 
I think it's by something like 20%, if I can remember um, correctly. And, and when you think about Jesus bringing hope to the world, that when you are infused with hope, you don't just become hopeful, you actually become more intelligent. Because the moment you have hope, you start seeing possibilities. See, when you're pessimistic, you become blind to possibilities. When you're optimistic, you actually begin to see possibilities. The moment you begin to see possibilities, you actually can elevate the, the full expression of your life. And so you become fundamentally, I mean, foundationally, a more intelligent human being, which to me is kind of, kind of awesome. Yeah. I can be smarter simply because I live a life of hope than a life of pessimism. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of quotes uh, that you have in the book uh, that I have a couple of questions that I want to ask you about. The first one is uh, you write, in fact, I have found that the willingness to question everything, to explore the depth of one's own beliefs and doubts often leads us to our most profound insights. And I wanted to ask you, what's a question that you've been exploring recently that has led to you gaining a greater insight, either into yourself or people or Jesus or anything like that? Well, I mean, it was a question that I asked myself when I wrote the book. Uh, I was in my back house during quarantine, and I sat in the back and I listened to myself have this argument, and uh, and it began with how odd it is that my life has been changed by one person who lived two thousand years ago. And I said so. I can't deny that I've been changed by Jesus, but let me just look at it objectively. So I said, let's, what, what if Jesus isn't God? That's how I actually began writing this book. So what, what, what if I'm wrong about Jesus being God? It doesn't change the fact that my life has been changed by Jesus. So then my life has been changed by the idea of Jesus. And so then I stepped back and I thought to myself, how strange, what's, what's more of a miracle? to be changed by the reality of Jesus or to be changed by the idea of Jesus. And I thought, a more like psychological phenomenon would be that I was changed by an idea that existed 2000 years ago. And that's actually where the seed of the book came from. And so when I first wrote it, I actually wrote it as a person who did not believe. And, uh, and then um, my editor asked me, hey, could you put in there that you do believe so that people will know you do believe <laughs> and, uh, and not just think that you've walked away from your faith. And, and so I went in and, and wrote in sections going, hey, I want you to know, I really do believe Jesus is God. But, uh, but that's not the question that drove this book. See, the, 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 question, the questioning for me was, if Jesus is not God, how do you explain how much your life has changed? And that's what drove me to look at the power of the idea of Jesus, which allowed me to see Jesus through a new template. Hmm, that's good. Uh, the other quote that I want to uh, read and then ask you about is you also write in the book, you would think the truth would make you more dogmatic, but in fact, the opposite is true. The person who genuinely searches for truth will always have an open mind and an open heart. How can we live? I mean, and obviously it might be, the answer might be in the quote, but how can we live more with, uh, with an open mind and open heart to, to the truth? Yeah, I think one of the challenges is that we really do believe our opinions are the truth. And, yeah. and then when you're a Christian, you add God to it. And uh, literally this week, I had a conversation uh, I, was in, I was thrown to a conversation with the guy who has the highest I, recorded IQ in the world and another guy who was at this event um, where everyone paid $100,000 to be there. So this was like a really high-end 
uh, event. And they were arguing about whether the earth was round or flat. So the guy with the highest IQ in the world was saying the world, of course, is a sphere. You know, we know that through physics, through mathematics, we know that through science, we know, you know, anyone, you know, and, and, and then the other guy starts going, no, the earth is flat. It explains if plane travel explains, and he's like, you know, explains math, explains physics. And then the guy went on to say, God revealed it to me one day. He opened up my eyes to see the earth is flat. That's what it means with ferment in the Bible. And I thought, well, here I am with an atheist who's a genius who believes the world is round and a Christian who believes he has divine revelation that God told him the world was flat. And I made the mistake of laughing at him. I didn't do it on purpose. I just laughed because I thought it was funny. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, and look at you, you're just laughing. And I said, hey, I, I am laughing. I couldn't deny the fact that I was laughing, but I said, I'm not laughing because of your view. See, because I'm okay if you want to believe the earth, the earth is flat, if you use data and math and physics. But the moment you tell me that God divinely revealed to you, you opened your eyes to revelation that the earth is flat, I just have to laugh because that's where everything you're saying is discredited. Because it, that's actually a level of narcissism where we actually think our opinions are the mind of God. And I think we have to remain, we have to keep a level of humility that says, hey, like I have a relationship with Jesus that has changed my life. But I'm probably wrong about a lot of opinions yeah. <laughs> and wrong about a lot of things I think are convictions. And I remember one year, and this was probably at least a decade ago. So I have a brother. He's brilliant. He's an incredible human being. And but one day we were having a conversation and you know how brothers can can banter and spar and he said yeah and he said uh, to me man you've really changed and when he said it he didn't say it as a compliment it, it, you know and i felt it like oh and i wanted to say no i haven't <laughs> then i then i i paused and i realized and i said yes i have i've really really changed and I'm going to keep changing. And somehow we think changing our minds is a sign of weakness. But you know why we can't trust presidents? And you know why we can't trust politicians? It's because they change their minds right in front of our eyes. And then they won't even admit the fact that they were wrong or that they changed their mind. See, I, I, I don't think most, I, I think most Americans don't trust politicians, not because they hold different positions, but because they can't tell the truth about not knowing something. You know, I mean, you know, we've been in the middle of this whole thing in Afghanistan and like, it's been brutal. It's been horrific. It's a global crisis. And, you know, I, I don't think anyone will hold it against President Biden if he just said, this thing's a mess. <laughs> it's really complex. We didn't, we didn't prepare to the level we should have prepared. We should have exited everyone before we withdrew the troops. We should have moved out all the civilian personnel first and then moved out the military personnel. I'm not even an expert. And I could just see like some simple things that could have been done. And I don't think anyone would go, um, yeah, you shouldn't be president because um, you made mistakes. I think people start going, wait a minute, why can't you just own it? Why, why, you know, why, why can't you just say, wow, oh, this is really hard. I have, I have the best intelligence in the world and it's still not enough. It's still not good enough for us to always make 
the best decisions or or to know how to do things. And and um, and I'm just using that as an example, not trying to yeah. be political at all. I just think it's a really difficult situation. I think there have been a lot of presidents that have tried to address it. And and so I just look at things both ways, you know. I, I and and I, I I think it's really important to always posture your heart to say, um, I don't know. Yeah. You know, and I'm trying to figure that one out too. Uh, that's a diff- that's a really difficult question, and I, I think some of the more profound and difficult questions in life, um, we ought to just be able to go. You know, that's a hard one. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to figure that one out too. Yeah, for the person who's listening right now, and uh, they're they're part of the people who maybe have felt like they've lost their genius. What would you say to that person because they're trying to find it? Yeah, I, I'm going to give you a really simple place to begin. I think the the most profound act of genius is love, and and so before you try to figure out how to become a you know a master chess player or or figure out the theory of everything or figure out what a singularity really is or you know and before you try to go find quote some kind of genius out there that is an expression of intellectual capacity, why don't you just develop the genius of love, and begin to make every decision in your life based on love and relate to people in your life based on love and try to let love elevate your thinking to a higher level. And I think if you begin there, you're going to find your, your, um, your IQ or certainly your EQ elevated at a level you never thought. Yeah. Uh, and one of the last things I want to ask you is how do you, how have you learned to lift or highlight the genius in other people? I actually love doing that. You know, uh, and sometimes I have to be careful not to become, um, a a a a prophet of greatness by um trying to declare greatness in people or pull greatness out of people that isn't there and uh, and so i think that i think there's this great balance what you want to do is you want to look for clues uh because greatness always leaves clues so whenever you see someone doing something really well you, you, i just love highlighting it i love celebrating it and and uh but i've also kind of learned that i need to mitigate that and make sure that I'm actually celebrating and highlighting something that really is an expression of their unique gifting and talent. Mm-hmm. Well, we've covered a lot of the book so far, but is there anything that you haven't mentioned so far about the book that's really just standing out to you that's like, hey, I, w- I want to make sure that I mention this? Oh, you know, the one thing I would love to mention is that um, a part of writing the book, The Genius of Jesus, is we started a podcast called The Genius Of, where I've been yeah. interviewing uh, different men and women who have expressed a unique level of genius. And the first one was a guy named Ed Milet, who has several million followers. He's, um, I think he owns like 30 something different companies and um, really, really brilliant. And um, I interviewed Jamie, Leem, uh, uh, Jamie uh, Lima, who, Kern Lima, who started a company with, I think, a couple of thousand dollars in the bank and, and sold it for $1.2 billion to um, a cosmetics, is what she was a founder of, and to L'Oreal. And um, I have all these different people coming on that. Um, I think have a unique expression of genius. It's been a lot of fun uh, to do that. So I just encourage people to check out our podcast, The Genius Of. Uh, I I like the theme that every superhero has an origin story. And so we're not really like highlighting as much the the application of their genius, but the journey to discovering their own genius, which I think can help us all. Yeah. What's, uh, I know that there's probably a lot that you've learned through the conversations. What's, what's one thing that you can tease people with that has uh, stood out to you from those conversations? Um, that most people who achieve great things start from, um, harsh beginnings. Hmm. 
It's the opposite of what you think. It's not that they got a leg up. It's not that they were trust fund kids. It's not that they got a huge advantage from their parents through wealth or position, um, but that they learned how they, they learned that the harsh realities of life were not powerful enough to kill them. And they rose up and became something really special. Yeah. Well, Erwin, I know that people are going to want to continue to keep up with you and get the book, The Genius of Jesus. Where's the best place for people to go to do all of those things? So many places. I guess you can go to barnesandnobles.com. You go to amazon.com. You can always go to a physical bookstore. Oh, uh, the best place to go is the geniusof.com. And then you can pick up your book through there. Sounds great. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. I think coming out of that conversation with Erwin, it makes me think of two things. One, it makes me think of and actually reminds me of an episode that we did uh, just fairly recently with a guy named Ron Friedman. And he wrote this book called uh, Decoding Greatness. And it's all about reverse engineering people and the success that they achieved. And so it makes me think of um, understanding the success of geniuses and paying attention to the patterns that they have and realizing what differentiates them from other people or distinguishes them from other people as well. And realizing that there is a lot of overlap in terms of what we can learn from them, even if they're outside of our field. You know, that's one of the things that I loved uh, about you know, Berman talking about Leonardo da Vinci and how there's there's a few similarities, but there's so many differences in there. And then we can learn from the genius of other people and apply those principles that are universally true to everywhere. And so I'm going to link to that episode with Ron Friedman. And uh, it's really good because he talks about how to identify the patterns of people and recognizing that. I think the other thing that really it made me think about was the George Land study that he talked about is how as kids, all of us have tested as being a genius and yet something has has caused us to eliminate or to remove that genius from us to conform uh, <laughs> to conform to the patterns of this world as the Apostle Paul would say and fitting the mold of what is acceptable or what is culturally acceptable or what what is deemed as success and that and so learning to pay attention to that and and recognizing how are we subtly or um or maybe not even so subtly how are we erasing the genius in in the next generation or the people who are around us and being more careful of that and paying attention to how can we not erase that, but how can we how can we stroke that fire and fan that flame in them and help them uh not uh not be so and not cause their flame to go out. But how can we flame it? And so that's some of the things that I was thinking about through that conversation. And uh, I'm sure if I had more time to think about it, I'd say some more. But those are some of the things that I'm thinking about. Those are some of the things uh, that I took away from the conversation from the book. And if you enjoyed the conversation, make sure that you uh, get the book, The Genius of Jesus. 
and uh, listen to the podcast, The Genius Of, as well to learn more from Erwin. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and write a review on whatever podcast player you use. Hit subscribe on the podcast player and you won't miss any episodes that we have releasing over the next uh, however long that we end up doing the podcast for. And yeah, if uh, if there's something or someone that you would like us to cover or talk about on the podcast, uh, reach out to me through this email, learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com and would love to hear from you and some of the different uh, things or subjects that you would love to learn about and maybe we could talk about that here on the podcast as well or any questions that you have as well. So uh, I do want to give a quick shout out and say thanks to Garrett for editing the podcast. Thanks to Sam Massey for creating the music for the podcast. And thank you, Erwin, for being on the podcast. And thank you, the listener, for listening all the way to the end of the episode. I think that's all that I have for today. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.